Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to today's webinar, which is Dosing Multivitamins Outside of a Shortage. Am I practicing the standard of care? Uh, my name is Carol Ireton Jones. I'm a registered dietitian and I am your moderator today. I work with patients who require home parenteral and enteral nutrition and patients with GI disorders. I would like to thank uh, Baxter for supporting this webinar today. All right, so these are the learning objectives. Upon completion of this activity, the learner will be able to describe the importance of providing daily multivitamins in pediatric and adult patients who are receiving parenteral nutrition, summarize the potential harms with substandard dosing of multivitamins in pediatric and adult patients on PN, and review case examples to demonstrate the importance of appropriate multivitamins when there is no longer a shortage. This is adult and pediatric patients, so we're looking at the whole spectrum of age of our patients. Before I introduce our speakers, I just wanted to mention a bit about product shortages. So how does a clinician find out what products are on shortage? I I Google, yes, I do. And the first source that I found was uh, Aspen's Nutrition Care Guidelines on Nutrition Product Shortages, uh, which I'm very proud of. Then ASHP has some information. The FDA has information. Manufacturers may have information, organizations as well. Aspen, Naspagan, and NHIA also have information on shortages, which is where we as clinicians may find out about shortages. But how does a patient find out about shortages? They may find out from their uh, home infusion provider or their DME or home enteral provider. They um, can look at the OLE website. OLE tries to keep updated with uh, product shortages, and they often refer back to um, us as well, Aspen, ASHP, FDA, etc. But interestingly enough, patients may find out which products are on shortage by talking to each other, which is something we'll discuss as we go on. So I'm going to introduce both of our speakers at this time so we can uh, just continue this. So first, I'd like to introduce Dr. Katherine uh, Larson-Nath. Dr. Larson-Nath is a pediatric gastroenterologist at the University of Minnesota. She completed her residency in pediatrics at the University of Minnesota and then went to the Medical College of Wisconsin for her fellowship in pediatric gastroenterology, hepatology, and nutrition before, before returning to the University of Minnesota. She is the Director of Intestinal Rehabilitation at the University of Minnesota and her research is focused on body composition in children with chronic disease. She is also an associate editor for Nutrition and Clinical Practice and chair of Aspen's Clinical Practice Committee. Our next speaker will be Diana Mulherin, who is a clinical pharmacy specialist in nutrition support at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee. She earned her Doctor of Pharmacy degree from the Medical University of South Carolina. She completed a pharmacy practice residency at Palmetto Health Richland in Columbia, South Carolina, and a critical care and nutrition support PGY2 at the University of Tennessee and the Regional Medical Center at Memphis. 
She is board certified in nutrition support and critical, critical care. She joined the inpatient adult nutrition support team at Vanderbilt eight years ago, where her practice, research, and teaching efforts are focused on critical care nutrition. She has spoken professionally and has authored many book chapters and journal articles on topics related to nutrition and clinical care. Diana has served as chair of the Nutrient Shortages Subcommittee for Aspen's Clinical Practice Committee since 2020. So please join me in welcoming our faculty, and I will now turn the program over to Dr. Larson Nath to begin her presentation. Thank you all. Thank you, Carol. I'm very honored to be speaking here today, and thank you for that wonderful introduction. So I will be going over the pediatric side of multivitamin dosing and why it's important that we go back to standard of care. So I have no disclosures and we'll be focused on the pediatric side for these. So when we start, the first question that I think is gonna come up for people now that we are seeing more and more of the multivitamin being available is again, why does it matter? You know, we are getting back to, you know, we've been getting by and things are just fine. Why do we need to start giving it again daily? And I think, you know, it's, it's something that is important because we do put our patients at risk. And just doing a, a simple um, PubMed search, we find many different shortages leading to nutrient deficiencies. And sometimes these patients have been appropriately decreased dose, other times not. They may have just been taken out and not receiving nutrients. And so it's important that we provide the standard of care. And I'll explain why this is even critically important in pediatrics. And to understand that, we first need to think about what makes pediatrics different and what is important of, about pediatrics. And during growth and development in pediatrics, we have these um, area timeframes called critical periods. And so what critical periods in development are, are periods of developmental change. Um, most often we think about neurological development like gross motor development, um, you know, brain development, things like that, that occur over a certain time frame, And we cannot, and if we do not have proper nutrition or these developmental changes do not occur, occur during that time frame, we cannot have catch-up later on. So you can't have catch-up growth outside of a critical period. Um, and I would say that should say that's catch-up neurological growth. For pediatrics, um, we think about this from both a neurological and a linear growth standpoint. When you think about the neurological standpoint, we really think about those first 1,000 days of life. This is when the neurological scaffolding is set down um, that serves as the basis for all future development. And once you're outside this period, it is very difficult to um, to catch up again with the, with that kind of neurological development. And nutrients are a very important part of setting up the scaffolding and this framework. We know that um, vitamin A, vitamin D, B6, B12, folate, and thiamine are all vitamins that, again, have been on shortage that are critical for this neurological development. In addition, iron, zinc, choline, iodine, proteins, fats and um, micronutrients and glucose are also key. And so if we are suboptimally dosing, we put our, our patients at risk for missing these critical developmental periods. And I would also advocate that linear growth is a critical period in pediatrics. Once you have your growth plates fused, which happens during puberty, you cannot get taller. 
and, vit and um, vitamins play a key role in linear growth as well. Now, a little bit less, you know, in the younger age, you have some time to catch up, but once you get to that, um, the puberty timeframe, that's really the end. Critical nutrients that have been implicated to positively affect growth include vitamin A, iron, zinc, and protein. So again, vitamin A is one of the things that we look at. What's interesting about vitamin D is that there's actually a recent Cochrane review that showed that there is probably um, some impact of being on vitamin D versus not being on vitamin D, maybe to a slight height Z-score increase, but they really didn't find any good quality evidence for that, in addition, there was no difference um, in the additional supplementation of a low dose versus high dose of vitamin D. So while vitamin D's impact overall on linear growth may be a little bit up in the air and is probably more related, the findings more related to quality of evidence, what we know is that vitamins are critical for both neurological and linear growth development in pediatrics. So we have these critical periods that we need to um, that we need to make sure that we are optimizing growth and development within. And we know that life is not a straight line. And really, I feel for many of our patients with intestinal failure who are on home IV nutrition support, they are walking this fine line every day. And there can be little speed bumps and it's like walking a tightrope and we really don't want them to fall off. There's not, you know, we're not walking a, um, on a wide sidewalk here. It can be a very much a tightrope. And I'll go over a couple cases to talk about some of these and then talk about some other issues that come up. We will first talk about illnesses and how this may impact um, their nutrient status in regards to vitamin dosing. So I'll talk about a case of an 18-month-old who came in with rotavirus gastroenteritis. She was actually, um, she was admitted for vomiting and dehydration. She was found to have an INR of 3.4 on her admission and had normal evaluation of her liver with normal transaminases, bilirubin, and platelets, and her liver ultrasound was normal. This really indicated to the team that, okay, it's probably vitamin K deficiency that was leading to her elevated INR. And what we know is that um, we can see this in kids, not terribly common, but we definitely can see it. But I think our children who are walking that tightrope again are going to be at higher risk, especially if they've lost their part of their um, ileum because of short bowel syndrome. And what happens is that our intestinal bacteria produce some vitamin, a specific type of vitamin K called menaquinones. And this likely impacts the, um, the, the, this is absorbed. And when we have a viral gastroenteritis, this vitamin K is not absorbed as well, probably from a combination of increased transit time leading to decreased absorption, but then also probably some alterations in the microbiome where we're switching away from vitamin K producing uh, um, bacteria to less vitamin K producing bacteria. And so while this child in example here doesn't have short bowel syndrome, you can imagine that this becomes even more of a risk for our children who are already on that tightrope and not um, and just barely getting by with their nutrients because they have reduced IV provision of their multivitamin and maybe relying more on enteral provisions. We also, just life in general, everyone, if you have kids or even if you don't have kids, we know this, the same thing does not happen every day of the week. You know, things happen, kids may miss a feed, it might be at school, there might be, um, you know, we have multiple care providers, we're relying on accurate communication between within care providers and between 
the healthcare team and the family. And that's definitely a bi-directional communication that we have to be careful about and careful about how we ask questions as well. And again, this if we're walking this fine line, we risk running into deficiencies. So I think a good case example um, is of this child. He was a five-year-old male who had a history of gastroschisis and ileal atresia. He had about 20% expected of his proximal small bowel anastomose to the hepatic flexure without the ilocecal valve. At home, prior to the vitamin shortage, had been slowly increasing feeds based on tolerance, really kind of on autopilot, was on an amino acid-based formula, getting feeds eight times a day, about 41 calories per keg per day from his feeds, and his PN was providing about 45 calories per keg per day averaged over the week with a daily multivitamin and individually dosed trace elements. Well, along comes our vitamin shortage. And he was you know, relatively close um, to being about 50% enteral. And it was very, very hard to have enough of the multivitamin. So the decision was made to um, stop his, per asthma recommendations, to stop his um, IV multivitamin and start an enteral multivitamin. And you could advocate that, um, you know, well, he has short bowel, really was the 50% enough. And I think we definitely have to take that into context of what the availability was at that time as well. What then happens is six weeks later, mom reports that, you know, he has increased vomiting. He was walking like he was drunk and his eyes appeared crossed. He was seen by optometry and was found to have nystagmus, bilateral six nerve palsy and retinal hemorrhages. And as many of us probably realize that this is classic Renicke's encephalopathy. And he was found to have a thiamine level that was 38 with a normal range being 70 to 180. Pretty scary. We were able to treat it, and he fully recovered, including his neurological symptoms and findings that were on his MRI. Upon further discussion and communication with family, we found out that um, they had not been giving the multivitamin for the enteral one for several weeks because they felt like he was throwing out more with it. And our team had not specifically asked about that, which is something we learned from this. And in addition, most days he was actually only getting six feeds a day, and it was only once in a while he was getting eight feeds a day. So overall, even with, you know, he was getting about 0.7 milligrams per day of thiamine instead of the needed 1.2 milligrams. So I think this just brings up clearly how this fine line that these families, that these families are walking and it can be difficult. And the importance also for clear communication and really having a buffer is very important when we're caring for our patients. We'll talk a little bit, as we all realize, short bowel syndrome, when we're switching from an IV to an enteral um, product, they're going to have higher needs um, just because due to their anatomy and patient's anatomy. And so thinking about what part of their intestines they have lost and knowing it's not going to be a one-to-one -one conversion. And then thinking a little bit about how puberty and then the risk of vitamin deficiencies and toxicities may also play a role in this fine line that we are walking. So we think about growth and caloric needs. This changes over time. If you look at the um, pediatric growth chart, um, especially from the two to 20 year old charts, you will see that you know, the slope of rate of weight gain increase is pretty slow. And then right around when puberty start, starts, it increases quite a bit. And in fact, um, from about two years of age until puberty, kids gain about 2.5 kilograms a year in weight. But then during puberty, Boys will gain about nine kilograms a year and girls will gain about 8.3 kilograms a year. And overall, you increase your, um, you gain about 50% of your end adult body weight during puberty. 
and again, it's clearly is seen on the growth chart. So what this means is that there's a child who might be walking that tightrope just fine, and maybe there's a little more wiggle room on it, maybe it's closer to a balanced beam, but then they go into puberty and it gets smaller, right? They're walking more that tightrope because they, are, they have higher needs. And so we do risk this happening if we are suboptimally dosing that we do not have that buffer. You can also see this based on the caloric needs for a moderately active child. And if you look at any charts that have this, you will see that, you know, for both boys and girls yearly, the caloric needs for a moderately active child. And if you look at any charts that have this, you will see that, you know, for both boys and girls yearly, they increase about 100 calories um, per day. And then it slows down, and every two years you'll see their um, intake needs. Sorry, intake caloric average caloric intake needs go up about every two years. But then once you or every three years, sorry. But then once you hit puberty, that's when it starts going up every one to two years. The average caloric needs again going along with that increase in weight gain. And so what might be okay pre-puberty for a child, they might have increased needs. And we'll see this even outside of shortages that sometimes it can be a struggle for patients as they're going through puberty to maintain their growth. Um, and if they are just walking that line and it's a time where sometimes kids do need to go back on some TPN. We also see similar things um, looking at just the DRI based on age. So when we look at how much for different vitamins patients need, it increases, you know, by about, um, by about 50%, a little bit between birth and four to eight years of age every year. But then when we look between four to eight years of age and then nine to 13 years of age, we see dramatic increases with some vitamins, um, DRIs almost doubling. Vitamin C goes from 25 milligrams per day up to 45 milligrams per day when you look between eight years and nine to 13 years of age. And most of the B vitamins also increase by about 50%. For instance, thiamines go from about 0.6 to about 0.9 between eight and nine years of age. So these are really just high-risk times. And if we aren't providing that buffer for our patients, I'm a broken record here, we are putting them at risk. We also need to think about what is in the products that we are giving patients if we are using alternate dosing. So one of the recommendations is that you use adult dosing, but adult dosing does not provide, does not just provide the correct um, nutrients for children off the bat. One perfect example would be with vitamin K. And if you look at the adult recommendation or the adult multivitamin products, there's 150 micrograms in 10 milliliters of the adult products. And in five milliliters of the pediatric products, there's about 200 micrograms. So if we are giving an adult five milliliters to a child, we are giving them much less um, vitamin K than what is needed. And we have to be sure that we are giving extra vitamin K. In addition, we know that there are more, that the level of potential toxins in the adult formulations is higher based on very reasonable standards. So things like propylene glycol, polysorbate, and aluminum all are at higher levels in the adult multivitamin. And so we may be putting our patients at risk, especially our smallest patients, like our NICU patients. And if you want to learn a little bit more about this, Patria Cobber did a wonderful job going into detail about this and the toxicities in a um, webinar that's on the Aspen website from March of 2021, where she where there was talking about optimizing care during the multivitamin shortage. 
So what does this come down to? We really need to use an age-appropriate product for our patients. They are gonna be tailored to the different nutrient needs of your patients based on their age. And in pediatrics, this changes with time. And it also will minimize possible toxins. We also allow for some wiggle room. It does not rely on enteral absorption. So if someone has gastroenteritis or gets sick, they're vomiting, you know, we have that backup there. And, it all, and the wiggle room also helps if there's misfeeds or illness going on. And what this really does come down to is that it assures that we are not missing out on these critical developmental periods for our patients and um, maximizing their overall growth. And just to put it out there, the Aspen has the recommendations on dosing um, of parenteral multivitamins on the website that is available. All right, and then I will now throw this on over to Diana. Thank you. Um, those are really great cases and great examples of um, why, you know, even in a shortage, we're not really providing um, the standard of care. Um, when we're having to ration. All right, so I am going to give um, the adult perspective of what Katie just talked about. So we're going to talk about dosing of multivitamins outside of a shortage in adult patients. And so my first question to answer is really, what is the standard of care for provision of multivitamins in parenteral nutrition? Um, as you just saw, we do have the Aspen recommendations for dosing in PN that is available. It's a free reference available for um, anyone on the internet. And so I would encourage everyone to take a look at that. Uh, water soluble and fat soluble vitamins are contained in the adult uh, recommendations. And this is um, these doses are identical to what is available for the IV multivitamin product that we provide in adult PN formulations. The recommendations for what we provide for IV vitamins is a little bit higher than um, what is provided via an oral uh, RDA or adequate intake recommendation. So for fat-soluble vitamins, the actual dose per dose, unit, unit per unit, is equal to what is recommended for oral. But this is because when we're giving it IV, we're giving um, all of that, 100% of that is you know, available systemically versus when we take something orally, it's not going to be 100% absorbed. So that's taken into account the fact that patients who require PN have higher needs at baseline for vitamins due to underlying malnutrition, underlying vitamin deficiencies at baseline, metabolic changes that are occurring related to their illnesses, whether this is critical illness or some chronic illness that the patient has going on, leading them to need parenteral nutrition. And so this is why the dose winds up being higher. For water-soluble vitamins, the dose is actually much higher, like two to five times higher than the oral recommended doses. And this is not only just because of the higher baseline needs, but also when we give vitamins IV, there is increased urinary excretion. And so that is what is taken into account there. Some other rationale for the requirements, one of the things that you may see commonly in the, in the literature is that we've been using these doses for decades, over 40 years at this point, without any signs or um, documentation of toxicity. I don't love this argument because 
Um, I'm going to make the argument in a few slides that just because it's not documented or just because it's not published does not mean it's not happening. But um, just FYI, there is no documented um, occurrence of toxicity that I could find in the literature. Something else that I like to point out is that deficiencies have been described despite patients taking daily multivitamin despite this being provided in the PN formula. And I think that's a probably a better argument um, as we talk about the importance of daily provision of vitamins. So for example, vitamin C is commonly described in patients, vitamin C deficiency is commonly described in patients who are receiving IV vitamins in their PN formula. These two examples are in patients on parental nutrition in the home setting. And you can see even in the bottom study, Despite daily provision of the IV multivitamin, these patients were, um, 15 of the patients actually were diagnosed with scurvy. It was, it was that low, less than 11 micromoles per liter. And so this definitely can still occur despite daily provision of multivitamins. Vitamin D is another common thing. If you think about if anyone's managing patients in the home setting, many, many, many patients who are reliant on PN will also need vitamin D supplementation. And in these two studies, patients were not only on PN with multivitamin daily, but they were also on oral dosing as well daily. And, and a good percentage of them, about 25% in each study, were still um, deficient in vitamin D. So what is the standard of care for provision of multivitamins? I looked through every um, nutrition society, any nutrition society that had a statement about provision of multivitamins. I have included it here. I'm sure I missed some, but everyone I could think of. Um, and ASPEN, the American Society for Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition, the European Society for Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition, Australian and German guidelines all recommend that all PN prescriptions shall or should include a daily dose of multivitamins unless it is contraindicated. ESPEN also just published uh, a micronutrient guideline earlier this year, and they go on to state that this should be provided from the beginning of therapy. So, um, you know, kind of putting it out there that even at the beginning of therapy, um, when patients may be, um, while some may, may assume that it's okay to go, you know, and not add multivitamins at the beginning, we should actually be doing this because we're just putting patients at risk for vitamin deficiencies uh, from the get-go if we're not if if we're not putting them adding them into their PN formula from the beginning. We've had multivitamin shortages for decades, and um, numerous supply disruptions have been have caused problems for patients who rely on PN. The causes have been numerous. There have been quality issues equipment issues, the number of manufacturers can have always been an issue and is currently an issue today. Um, there have been products that have been discontinued, which, which is one of the reasons that uh, led to this current shortage that we're experiencing. And then there's been a pandemic, as everyone knows, shortages of raw materials and supplies for productions have caused significant supply disruptions of not just multivitamins, but everything in the world that we use. And so we're all dealing with this. It's so common that as we've already mentioned, Aspen does provide 
management considerations for all products that go into PN shortage management. And um, these are updated as we learn new information. And so the current multivitamin recommendations or considerations, I should, I should say, have, are being updated and um, they're kind of towards the end of their editing process. And so hopefully in the next um, few months, uh, I would say at the latest, maybe quarter two of, of next year, hopefully that will be available to everyone on Aspen's website. The consequences of frequent shortages is that rationing of multivitamins has really become a common practice. And it's so common that we don't have adequate supply for not just multivitamins, but so many products that we, um, many people that are practicing in nutrition support maybe have never been practicing in an era where we have everything we need to create a safe formulation. And so for some, this might seem normal and this might seem like it's a standard of practice, but it is not. And so what's happening is that we have seen patient harm related to shortages of products, specifically um, because the multivitamins are not able to be provided daily. Um, there's been a question, is rationing harmful? Well, this one study I found says that it's not really harmful. And um, I just will say that I don't agree with the study and my bottom line for this study is that no one should really follow what it's recommending, but um, I'll tell you why very quickly. There were five patients in this study. They looked at patients who were on home PN who had short bowel and these patients were receiving multivitamins three times a week. None of the patients were taking any oral vitamins. And I think the premise of the study was interesting. You know, hey, we're having these shortages and are we doing any harm? Um, unfortunately, this is the only study that that I could find that was published on the topic. I honestly couldn't tell from the study methods whether it was an observational or a retrospective study. Um, they did state that they did nutrition-focused interviews and physical exams throughout the study period, and they evaluated lab um, measurements, but that did not include any vitamin levels. And so based on these data, they had five patients in the study. Only two of the patients ever received daily multivitamins for comparison of daily vitamins versus three times per week vitamins. And based on basically what this is is a case report, but based on this case report, they said that no patients had signs or symptoms of vitamin deficiencies. Um, I, I would argue that this is not a lot of patients. And um, if they if they weren't really looking at the laboratory data, then they probably weren't going to necessarily find all of the signs and symptoms of vitamin deficiencies. And no difference in blood tests before or after the shortage period, but only two of those patients, they were able to compare that information. However, they did um, put it out there that you could save $1,000 per patient per year if you did three times per week dosing. Um, but I hope everyone can see that um, this should not be applied to practice and that um, this is a dangerous recommendation to apply to your daily practice. There have been numerous examples of harm from omission of multivitamins in adult PN admixtures. Most of these involve thiamine deficiency. There are many, 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 many case reports published from 1975 to 2014, and they kind of drop off after 2014, which I think is interesting. But all of these are really involving thiamine deficiency. 
and some patients even died in these case reports. Deficiency of thiamine can occur very quickly within days without adequate intake. And just for your reference, there are some of the clinical manifestations of thiamine deficiency. I think it's important to note that some of these patients were also taking oral multivitamins. And so we cannot assume that oral vitamins will prevent deficiencies in most patients who require PN. There's a reason that they're on PN. And um, if they could take oral multivitamins and that was going to be reliable, then they probably would not need parental nutrition in the first place. All cases that I just, um, that are referenced at the bottom of the slide here, and that I'm referring to, all of these cases resulted from omission of multivitamins in the PN. However, I would say that this does not mean that three times weekly dosing is safe. It is less than the recommended dosing for multivitamins. And if you kind of look at this from a pharmaceutical perspective, would it be appropriate for you to give half the dose of an antibiotic to a patient, half the recommended dose of the antibiotic to treat an infection? No, I think everyone would agree that that is not appropriate. And the same goes for vitamins and nutrients. It is not appropriate to give half the dose. Um, and so we don't know that it's safe to do this because we don't have any data to say that it is safe. All related publications did describe thiamine deficiency, but this does not mean that thiamine deficiency is the only risk. I would say the deficiency of any vitamin can occur with inadequate provision. I think that we're not looking for vitamin deficiencies and thiamine deficiency is one of those um, things that even if you're not looking for it, it will, it will make itself known because the patient's symptoms are so severe. So um, those are the things that we are seeing, and, and you have to look for vitamin deficiencies to recognize them. So what, else, what does this evidence tell us? Inadequate dosing, which is anything less than one full dose of multivitamins per PN bag, is unsafe for most patients who are on PN. We have numerous examples of harm in the literature, but this is still occurring. We don't see a lot of um, publications recently, but I don't think that has anything to do with the fact that we don't have shortages and that patients aren't being harmed. I think it's just um, kind of a reflection that less people, fewer people are uh, focusing on nutrition support, and we may not be publishing um, about the harm that we're seeing. I think that we're also maybe less likely to be monitoring adequately. I think we need to be looking for these vitamin deficiencies, if any errors or um, adverse events from shortages occur due to deficiency, due to shortages, I should say, please report them to ISMP and get these things reported so that we know that errors are occurring and that this is documented because um, it's, it's kind of crazy that we, we all know that this harm is occurring, but it's not being reported in the literature. At my institution, our team does evaluate all PN orders that we receive from outside providers, hospitals, or facilities. So when patients are transferred to our hospital and they are already getting PN, we our standard process is to obtain the PN order that they were receiving, speak to someone that was managing the PN, whether that's a pharmacist or a dietitian or both, um, or a provider, and we ask about the orders and ask about um, any clarifying issues. 
We've been doing this for over a year, and so far we've evaluated 97 PN orders. 18 of those orders did not have daily provision of multivitamins. When we asked if this was related to a shortage, only five of those were confirmed to be related to a shortage. So I know that this is happening, and it's not because of shortages all the time. So I'm gonna present a patient case that I recently had. This is a 62-year-old man with a history of rectal cancer. He had previously undergone a pelvic exoneration with an ileal conduit and had an end, end colostomy. Um, he later developed an intra-abdominal abscess and a perineal abscess that eventually formed into a fistula from his ileum to his perineum. And um, he wound up on PN for this reason that was managed by an outside provider and he was on home PN. He was admitted to us for a fistula takedown and he was supposed to be NPO on Valrest for PN with PN since July. However, um, after speaking with the pharmacist that was managing him at home, I learned that he was consuming a PO diet at home and he was just kind of non-compliant with his NPO status. He described his fistula output is out of control, but he was not having emesis, so he was fine with that. Um, he was just going to deal with it. Because of the, the location of his fistula, he was not able to, um, it couldn't be pouched and it was not measured. Regarding the vitamins in his PN, he was getting folic acid one milligram per bag that the pharmacy was adding for him. Um, the patient had a documented folate deficiency that was found at our hospital by anesthesia because they did a pre-op anemia screening. And so based off of those labs, the pharmacy started adding one milligram of folic acid to his bag, but no other vitamins were added to his bag at all. He had no multivitamins and no other individual vitamins. So I asked why, uh, what was, how were his vitamins being provided? And they stated that he just preferred prefer not to have to add anything because at home a, a vitamin, multivitamins are a patient add. And so he didn't want to do this and he um, was taking PO anyway. And, and everyone, you know, the, the idea was that he tolerated that he didn't have emesis. And so, um, and he stated that he had vitamins at home that he could take. So he'll, he'll just take that. And so that was, that was the rationale. So is this formula providing the standard of care? No, this is below the standard of care. And I wanna point out that even when we're rationing and it's because we have no other choice, we literally have no product, we're still providing substandard care. Um, and so during shortages, like every day you I come to work and I'm, I have a little heightened anxiety because I am, trying to make the best PN formula for my patients, but I know that it is substandard care. And it, um, I think my point that I'm trying to make is that it should make everyone a little frightened to do this. Um, and we don't wanna do this on a daily basis. So if we don't have a shortage, we should not be doing less than daily provision of vitamins. So this patient has higher needs at baseline. He has malabsorption, he has high output fistula. He also having the fistula um, puts him at chronic, like in a chronic inflammatory state. Oral vitamins are not appropriate for him, even if this was a shortage um, or the rationale was because of a shortage, it would not be appropriate. And this is, is one of those patients that you would try to reserve your vitamin products for because you cannot rely on his gut for absorption. 
And also the absence of emesis does not mean that a patient absorbs. I think um, not to, you know, I'm a pharmacist and so I feel like I can make fun of pharmacists a little bit here, but I think that's kind of a misunderstanding. Pharmacists don't always get that um, you have to absorb it. And, um, you know, we're not always thinking through like actual GI anatomy adequately. And so just because someone's not throwing up doesn't mean they're absorbing what they're swallowing. Um, the fact that he had a folate deficiency to me is a pretty good clue that he has other vitamin deficiencies and he probably does have other B vitamin deficiencies. They just were not checked. And so uh, one, one vitamin deficiency probably has another vitamin deficiency, at least one other, probably several going along with it. So when he has PN resumed, I think it's important for any patient when you're taking over care, um, I would say take the time to obtain the PN formula to make sure that you know what was in it, because I think if not, you can't really do a thorough assessment of a patient's risk um, and their risk for malnutrition and risk for vitamin deficiencies. The nutrition-focused physical assessment is extremely important when we're not able to give vitamins daily to our patients. Um, this can also help narrow down tests if you if you are able to order tests for your patients. Um, laboratory tests to confirm vitamin deficiencies. This can help narrow that down instead of, you know, ordering every test under the sun. I would assume that thiamine deficiency is present in a patient like this. And so I would go ahead and start repleting that rather than waiting on laboratory confirmation because you're probably going to have to wait. Um, it's a send out lab for many institutions. And so those are just some things that I would consider as I was restarting him. Multivitamins should be included daily for this patient and all patients. If you can start macronutrients below goal, I would at least consider that and monitor closely because um, especially thiamine, you need that to be able to metabolize the calories that you're providing a patient. And then um, hopefully this specific patient will eventually be transitioned to an oral diet once his fistula is repaired. And so the plan for managing his deficiency should include um, a transition to oral at some point. So takeaway points uh, from my perspective, please provide daily vitamins daily in the, in the PN formula and return to normal dosing as soon as a shortage resolves. Um, if you are not doing this, please reassess your practice and try to align with practice standards um, when we have the supply available. Thank you. All right, thank you very much. This is a quote that I've heard so many times recently. We're living in unprecedented times. I'm looking forward to living in precedented times. And I thought that was such a, a very good quote for basically what we're doing now. Okay, um, just wanted to let everyone know that this is the information that is on the um, Aspen website. It's Appropriate Dosing for Parental Nutrition Aspen Recommendations, and you can download that on um, nutritioncare.org uh, forward slash guidelines and clinical resources. So I recommend everyone take a look at that. Well, first of all, thank you to Diana and Katie. Wonderful presentations. I was taking notes myself. Let's go to the Q&A portion. A couple of things that I wanted to mention is um, in, in my area, which is the home area, we have some leeway in giving 
oral vitamins for patients who can eat. But I think, Diana, you put this very succinctly in the fact that we don't know how much they're absorbing. One thing uh, that I did during this multivitamin shortage is I started looking at all the different vitamins that our patients like to take. And of course, you probably know that they like to take oral gummy vitamins. And many of these are have very low or zero thiamine and other B vitamins. And there's a lot of minerals missed as well. So I think that um, relying on oral vitamins for these critical patients that we have that depend on parenteral nutrition is not appropriate. Most of these vitamins are given to complement the oral intake that these patients have. So it's, it's uh, oral vitamins are probably not uh, going to be adequate. Now, another thing I'd like to mention is again, and I mentioned this a little bit previously, but talking to the patients themselves that certainly at home, you may not find out that there were shortages when you're in the hospital, but certainly at home, if the providers don't talk to the patients, the patients will talk to each other. So I think it's important to mention that as well. And let me pull up some of these questions then. One of the questions, and, and Katie, perhaps you might answer this, is it possible for adults with diarrhea to have a vitamin K deficiency as well? I kind of knew that was going to come, didn't you? <laughs> right. So there are, there are case reports out there of adults. It's definitely described more in pediatrics, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. And it's not necessarily a common thing that you're going to see with everyone, but I do think our patients that we care for on home parental support are at a higher risk for it due to anatomy and underlying malabsorption. Thank you. Okay. Uh, let me get to a couple more questions here. Um, one of the questions was, and I think it was in your presentation, Katie, that are there more additives in the adult MVI? You mentioned that um, if substituting the adult MVI for your pediatric gives more potential for these additional additives. Uh, would you like to expand on that, please? So they are in there. And Diana, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think a lot of them are for stabilization. Is that mm -hmm. <laughs> correct? And so, yeah. Just it, it and how preservatives and preservatives exactly, and so it's how they are made. I cannot tell you why there's more in the adults than the pediatric formulations, but it does put kids at risk, and especially neonates if you're using adult products in neonatal patients. Very good. I just want you to know, Diana, that um, you have another agreement, but don't use that study on the. Um, <laughs> CP, the vitamin uh, supplementation. Okay. When vitamin A and vitamin E are elevated in TPN dependent patients, how do you treat that? Do you decrease MVI frequency? Wow. I have never seen uh, vitamin A or vitamin E increase unless it was due to additional supplementation outside of the PN. So on daily dosing with the doses in the PN, I have not seen that. I would, I would also say that vitamin A, um, I don't have a lot of experience measuring vitamin E, but vitamin A, um, it's important to look at CRP and um, several other levels in addition to your uh, vitamin A level. So it's not like a straightforward laboratory test to evaluate. 
So I would also kind of question if that was real. <laughs> I understand. I run into mild elevations once in a while, yeah. um, but normally they're very mild. And then again, you also with vitamin E need to look at your cholesterol levels as well because that can affect. Very good. Um, I, this is an interesting one from one of our questions. It says when HPN patients have itching or other symptoms with their infusion, they often say, well, it's the MVI. Um, any tips for dealing with patients who feel like the MVI is causing negative symptoms and don't want to add it to their bag? I can do a quick answer, although I don't manage home patients. Um, so this is almost never an issue on in my inpatients because they're often in the ICU. But we will, in the outpatient setting, um, I'm in a hallway full of people that are managing outpatients. And so they'll kind of run through and make sure that it is, they'll go through the list of things and um, in the PN formula and roll out other things as well. We'll do a trial to make sure that it is the, the multivitamin and not something else and try other, you know, maybe an antihistamine and see if that helps. Um, and then it's a last resort to take the multivitamin out. And then we'll also try to see if the patient is amendable to doing it a few times a week rather than omitting it every day. Um, and if that is the case, then we'll do that. And always supplement with oral. And sometimes with the oral supplementation, we may do, depending on their ability absor to absorb, we'll do uh, chewable and we might do twice daily chewable to kind of account for the fact that they're not absorbing adequately. I think you, you did a, a nice review in your case uh, on the transition from hospital to home, Diana, but both of you, um, we have our patients that are managed in the hospital, then we have our patients managed at home. How, uh, what recommendations do you have um, for that follow-up, for that transition, for finding out if in fact the provider is experiencing the shortages. Do you have any thoughts on the, the transition component of what you do as a the clinician in the hospital and you, you feel very confident that you've sent this patient home and then what happens at home? Yeah, so I manage both inpatient, our inpatients and our outpatients, so kind of see both sides. But what's really important is very clear communication. And I will see this because we are using different companies and home compounding um, companies as well. They, they have different supplies, you know, just like they're different. And that's within the same city area in around the country going to have different supplies. And key is the communication um, from the inpatient to the outpatient side. And our pharmacists are wonderful, pharmacists are wonderful and discharge coordinators are wonderful at doing this communication and really preemptive communication of okay, we're getting close to discharge. We need to make sure that there is not a shortage within the home pharmacy so that we can be sure that what we, the patient is tolerating in the hospital, they're going to tolerate as an outpatient. So really the key is that open communication and knowing who to call and talk to as you're making these transitions. I agree. It can't be the day that they're leaving. It needs to be thought about um, days prior, at least. Um, you know, I talked about what we do on the inpatient side, or we do this for outpatients as well. So it doesn't matter matter the level of care, but any patient we receive, no matter the setting, we will find we will obtain their PN formula to evaluate it. And 
the reverse needs to be true as well. So when we send a patient to a facility or send a patient to a different hospital or send a patient home, usually when we send a patient home, we're still managing. But when we're sending them outside of our care, it's a long process, but I will find where they're going, who's going to be managing the PN, if they're at a facility, is the facility pumping that PN, or is, are they using a um, commercially available product? Um, do they have multivitamins? What lipids do they have? We go through all of that. If it's an infusion company that's, that's managing it, I'll send the formula to both the facility and the infusion company. So it is a lot of work to figure out, and I'm not a case manager, but I want to make sure that my formula is communicated to the right people so that there are no questions about what the patient was getting and what the plan is for their PN. Because once they leave, um, you know, our surgeons are not going to be readily available to the outpatient infusion company to know what was going on and why we did things, you know, and so a lot of communication needs to occur. And if the if it's a patient that has to have daily vitamins and that pharmacy does not have daily vitamins to give, and that is kind of not an option for the patient, then we need to find a different pharmacy or a different facility. And we have done that um, in extreme cases where like, this is never going to be safe for this patient. They must get daily vitamins. We have um, stopped discharges because of that. Well, I think that that is almost at the end of our question, but I, I do want to understand that the multivitamins are available, and it may be from a provider's perspective that their allocation may or may not meet their demands. So, Diana, I, I think you've said something to this, so um, now that we know that they are in supply, the MVI is in supply, what would you say to a, a provider that is not providing the daily dose? Would that be an allocation problem or how, would, how could the clinician yeah. work towards that? So I would say if you're not getting what you need to provide your patients with daily multivitamins, I would do some investigating. There's a lot that happens between um, the manufacturer who's saying now that they're at 100% allocation. There's a lot that happens in between that and the patient. And so um, talk to your distributor and try to figure out if there are any, is there anything there that can be recalculated? Um, a lot of things are determined, like if you're on allocation, it's very complicated and different companies might do it differently. And so try to figure out if, if something can be recalculated for your facility. We were not able to obtain this product for months, but we want to start obtaining this product on a regular basis. And so your allocation a lot of times is based on your purchase history. And if you were not purchasing it because you couldn't, then that needs to be readdressed. And so it takes manpower, but you have to talk to people and try to figure out a way to get the product. You can also go directly to the manufacturer and ask for help, um, which I would really recommend if, if the distributor discussion is not helpful. All right. Thank you very much. Well, we are out of time now, and 
Uh, so I'm going to conclude the program. I'd like to very much thank our wonderful faculty for their excellent presentations. I would also like to thank Baxter for supporting this webinar. Thank you all for joining us today. Have a great rest of your day. Bye-bye. Just as a reminder, Aspen has a useful resource tool, Appropriate Dosing for Parenteral Nutrition, which is available on the Aspen website and as a link on the site where you stream this podcast, where the handouts for this podcast are also available. I believe you will find these tools useful to assist you in your practice and ensuring you are delivering the highest standard of care to your PN patients.